All right, all right, guys. You know what time it is. It's time for another episode of The Techie and the Cowboy. My name is Alastair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And I'm T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. So today we're going to talk about what people think, or as T.W. would like to say, who cares I don't care think? what people think. I don't care what people think. Or who cares what you think anyways, right? So uh, we have a lot of fun with it. But I mean, this is a serious thing. You know, people grow up with the impression of what it is that other people think being at the forefront of their mind. And it directs a lot of what it is that they do. So before we play our great intro music, talk a little bit about that, TW. I think there's a continuum. There is peer pressure. Uh, there is herd mentality. There are social norms. There are traditions of family and community. And then there are rules, regulations, and laws uh, set by the state. Somewhere along there, you have to behave. Some is good, and other parts are foolish. So (laughs) you have to to determine what is the road that you should be taking to be the person that you are and to be in that a good person and a good citizen. And there's also those people that push back against it constantly, and they spend their whole life trying to push back, even when it's not necessary. So we're going to talk about all this stuff, but first got to kick that amazing intro music. Let's kick it. And now, a few minutes with two of my friends, who will soon be yours, the Techie and the Cowboy. All right, here we go. So let's jump right into it. So uh, so I love what it is that you say. You know, the first thing that we always talk about is that you think about when you talk about what other people think is peer pressure. But let's talk about the family aspect of it, because I think that's the most interesting part of it. You got these people who it is that their parents really run their life from whenever they're little. And I don't think it ever stops whenever it is that they become adults from uh, what college they're going to go to, to, you know, what is career profession that there is that they're going to go into and even into their adult life. And when they're married, their parents have a lot of influence. So you asked a, a really interesting question. You said, what's the difference between peer pressure and following traditions or what I like to call family pressure? I remember one of the most astounding remarks that I had heard made up to that point that kind of gets to this topic is a good friend of mine, when I was a senior in high school, he lived in a suburb of Chicago that was called Beverly Hills. It was not, you know, California kind of thing, but that's where a lot of well-to-do people lived. And his dad was a physician or a surgeon. He was a doctor of some kind. And I remember going to the Beverly Hills Country Club and, you know, seeing all the stuff that was there. He took this young lady to a function there, not when I was visiting, but to a function there. And he'd met her, I don't know, at a coffee shop or somewhere. It was not through a family connection. And his mother actually pulled him aside later on and discouraged it and said to him, you can't date this girl because she's not of our class, dear. And so I thought, wow, that really exists. So she had set the bar of what was acceptable in their family for their tradition and their society and their expectations. So that when people in the caste system in other countries come over here, they can say, we came to America because that doesn't exist. Well, yeah, it does. And it's it's maintained by the haves and the have-nots, essentially. So it's I, I think about that, I thought, what difference did it make where she came from if she was a nice person, a good person, you know, somebody worthwhile? Didn't matter. Didn't pass the litmus test because 
you were from the wrong side of the tracks. You know, that's not just uh, having to do with how much money it is that you make. I can tell you from somebody who's in an interracial uh, marriage that that happens not just for class, but also when it comes to race, when it comes to status, when it comes to uh, job, when it comes to anything that, and I, this is my belief. My belief is that God has somebody that he's meant for you to be with. And I don't think any of that stuff plays into a factor how God looks at it. I don't think he says that, you know, a certain class, a certain amount of money, a certain race, certain whatever else is a person that's for you. I just think that you have somebody who it is that you're meant to connect with and meant to be with. It's unfortunate that families would actually interfere with that by putting what they think putting their boundaries or their, what is it you call litmus test in there for who it is that they think their kids would be with. And here's the thing. It's not a judgment thing because they're just doing the best that they can with the information that they have. Maybe they were brought up that way. Maybe they think that they are doing the best for their kids. Everything that we do as parents is just to try and protect our kids and trying to give them the best opportunity as possible. What I've learned is, is that all you can do is teach them and do the best that you can in giving them the foundation and then allow them to be able to figure out exactly what it is that they want and need and be there as more of a, a guidance system for them uh, once it is that they get to a, a certain age or a certain point in their life. But there's families that don't ever give that up. There's families that who it is that want to control their kids. And we talked about this, you know, those kids usually end up rebelling and pushing back. There was before I married Fran. I was dating, you know, to, after, after Cindy died. And I went out with this very lovely lady. She was a legal secretary, worked for a very big firm in downtown, and knew a lot of people, very pleasant to be with, was very likable. The one thing, though, was that she stopped her education at high school. She didn't go, go to college. And when she told me that, I thought, you're the first person I've really met that's been that way that I've been this close to. I wouldn't have known that if she hadn't have said it until she said to me one day, why do you use all those big words? You're just trying to impress me with the fact that you have an education and I don't. Well, I wasn't. As I told her, I said, sorry, that's the way I talk day to day. It's just, I'm a man of words. I love words. It's like a hobby. It's a vocation. I, I I thrill in using words in the right context. And at that point, it became obvious that the backgrounds were too different. But it didn't, it wasn't because family said, oh, you can't, you can't get serious with this woman because she doesn't have your education. It's just that it was going to be a problem between us. And I could see that that's a, a different criteria in doing that selection. You know, that's a great point because that ties right into the whole one of the challenges of worrying about what other people think is that you constantly think that what people are doing is a direct reflection of their relationship or what it is that they think about you. The reality is most of the time people have so much of their own stuff that they're not really thinking about you. But a lot of what it is that we do is um, determined based on what it is that we think other people are going to think like whenever it is that you are interacting with somebody, you're like, what are they going to think about me? What if even what we say, we say, if I say this, what are they going to think about me? What are they going to do about me? How it is that we dress? Uh, I've seen people that won't go to an event because they don't know how it is that other people are going to dress. And they're worried about how it is that they're going to look, uh, you know, if they're dressed differently than everybody else inside of that group. Or I know people who it is that won't, they will not leave their house without, and this is funny, they will not leave their house without looking a certain way because they're worried about what other people think. One of my good friends said, her mom said, you never leave the house without a full face of makeup. 
And so she, to this day, now she's an older lady, she did, will not leave the house, even if it is just to run to the grocery store or the convenience store or someplace very quickly without putting on a full face of makeup. That's based in what other people think, but that's also something that's ingrained into how it is that she feels about herself. Well, you probably don't remember the the heyday of it, but you you know the little alligator Izod logo yeah, on yeah. there was a there was a time where if you didn't wear an Izod shirt or shorts have the little logo on it, you were trash, and, and people would say, "Oh, poor Alistair, he doesn't have an Izod. He must not be a good person." An element that I want to talk about that I mean, it, it even got so bad that in the movie Jaws. That was one of the storylines. The kids were so poor that were, that were kids of the sheriff, they couldn't afford the Izod clothes, but all the people in the beach town were wearing Izod. They wanted to fit in, but they couldn't because dad didn't have enough money to, to pay for that. And I always thought that was, that was such a shame. But this is the element. In, in the state of nature, you know, in any of the books that you read about the stuff or see the movies, where you get three people, you've got politics. You get a group of people, you even get to the day you go to prison, you've got to establish where you are in the pecking order. And you do not want to be the lowest person in the pecking order. By people saying easily, oh, he is not wearing an Izod Lacoste shirt. Mm. So therefore, he's lower than me in the pecking order. They've had not to have any kind of challenge to set that order. They're just doing it only by clothes. Who knows? That person could be much smarter, could be much richer, could be uh, a fun person, but mm, we've made a judgment. So the group as a whole does that to protect their place in the herd. And that's a very important element about what people think is, if nothing else, it's they wield it like a weapon, but it's really defensive. Oh, yeah, it has 100% to do with how it is they feel about themselves and self-esteem. The biggest bullies in the world are ones that really have no self-esteem at all. You think about the ego and the cocky guys and the, and the cocky women who it is that constantly are lashing out at other people. And it's to be able to make themselves feel better by making other people feel down. So, you know, we talk about our youth, you're going to talk about a little bit how it is that you, you grew up being, you know, the bigger guy and, and the smarter guy, right? And you have that, that whole persona that you had to overcome whenever it is that you're younger. But on my side, I was opposite. I was the small guy and the smart guy and the nerdy guy, right? I had the glasses and I had the haircut. And at the time when I was growing up, uh, you know, Steve Urkel in Family Matters was very popular, and I was the spitting image of that guy, which didn't help at all, right? <laughs> so everywhere it is I went, and my mom bought me the, the cheap glasses, so they looked just like his, and I was always having to overcome that. And at that time, smart was not considered it's funny i have kids now who it is they wear fake glasses because it's cool and it's trendy to be able to wear glasses now they don't even need glasses and they wear the ones that don't have a prescription in them because it's trendy to be able to have that look now back then it was not trendy at all and i tell them if i could have gotten rid of my first thing i did whenever i got my first job was to buy contacts right just to be able to separate that part of why it is that i shaved my head and had my head shaved for all these years is because i wanted to break that persona and and change my perception of myself, right? But so anyways, I grew up with having to deal with bullies and having to deal with what other people think. And there's two ways I got around that. Well, first of all, I realized that them lashing out at me had nothing to do with me. And that helped a lot 
uh, in dealing with that. But the second thing that I did is I realized that these people really need a friend or need somebody who it is that will not bow down to them. So stand up to them. But at the same time, on the other hand, they needed somebody to be able to relate with. So I found that comedy and being funny and being able to be that person who got along with everybody was my way around that. So I would always find a way around however it is that they were lashing out on me to be able to serve them to the point where it is that a lot of the people who initially would have wanted to pick on me ended up being uh, people who it is that were my friends. And I just showed them why it is that what they were doing is not the best way to relate with people. Now, like you said, you never know what's going on in their home life. They could have been coming from an abusive relationship at home. You never know what was going on in the rest of their life. So understanding that these people normally are not bad people. They just are using uh, their lashing out as a way to be able to overcompensate for themselves. Sure. I have to revert back to my big path that I walk is humility. I remember one time, and I used to actually use this in a story storyline. My mother asked me, because she was very into scripture in the word, she would say, what is God working on you about with today? And my go-to answer was, he's working on my humility. And she would look at me and kind of laugh, and she goes, no, he's working on your lack of humility. <laughs> that's, to go, that's, that's completely different. And when I thought about it, you know, I was probably uh, late teens by this time. You know, I came from a family that you know, my dad was a, a, a doctor. My mother was an educator, uh, later a nurse. So financially, you know, we, we did okay. Never had to worry about that kind of stuff. Lived in a good part of town. I was athletic. I had some size. I I had smarts, so I did okay in school. There was uh, nothing that was an impediment to me going out into the world and, you know, and conquering all up to a point. So as a, as a kid, I never had to suffer through that. On top of that, my sister was gorgeous. She was charming. She was everything that at that time, I thought that a woman should be growing up and I idolized her. So I didn't like for uh, dates because you know, I'd get the crumbs of, of, of all the people that all the girls that she knew and said, Oh, I think you should go out with my brother being, I didn't even have to ask anybody. I, you know, I had a date of a, of a nice person. So it's kind of like, in some ways I had it too easy. So therefore it was easy for me when other people will talk about things and say, you have to do this, you have to do that. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have to compensate for any of that stuff. Nice. I was telling you a story off mic about the fact that my dad, because he had his own practice as a veterinarian, and it was near the the elementary school, the junior high school, and so after school was over, until I got into sports, my sister and I would go to the clinic. That was daycare. We'd have some makeshift jobs, and we'd earn some money you know, doing that stuff. But one of the things was that whenever my dad would run an errand, because I was too young to drive by myself at that time, I would always go with him. We'd go to the bank, we'd go to the lumber yard, we'd go to pick up whatever. He, he had, for some reason, he had a lot of welding projects and we'd go to the welders and pick up stuff. So at a young age, when I was in elementary school and junior high school, I spent a considerable amount of time with adults as opposed to kids my age. I didn't go out and play. I, I was working with this stuff. So it was very easy for me to adopt a personality that geared toward maturity and deal with people 
at that mature level because they were adults. They were treating me as an adult and I would treat them back as an adult. And so it worked. So when I w went off to school in high school and I'd go home for the weekend with my friends. And I remember that one time, one of the mothers said to me, I guess we were driving back to school or whatever. She goes, I am just really surprised and happy that you were one of the few people of the age that you are and, and my roommate. And she said, you do so well with adults and most kids can't. I never even thought of that. It's kind of like, uh, just the way you're supposed to treat adults. So because of that, I realized my individual nature and so that peer pressure didn't influence me that much because the peer pressure I was, I was looking at were the adults in my life, not people my same age. Now, looking at having two teenagers now with social media being so prominent and, and uh, you know, everything about how it is that they judge you. Whenever you go to high school, it's all about what other people think, because that's just the way that uh, the new generation is wired. Social media is about how many likes that you have, how many people comment on it. You know, I remember hearing a young person talk about, hey, I post something and if it is, I don't get enough likes, I delete it because that means that people didn't like it. Right. So the society now is very driven towards, you know, what people think. And I think that has this downside because now you have these people that are very, very, I wouldn't even say egotistic, but you have these kids who it is they're very self-centered. And that's why it is that there's not a, a lot of giving as much in the younger generation because everything's about me, what it is that people think of me and how it is that I can get more attention of whether it's positive or negative. It affects the music. It affects the way that people dress. It affects the way that people act. It affects the interaction that people have with the, in one another. Um, you know, it's, it's just crazy how it is that it's a whole different world than it was back in the day. But I think that that deals to another thing that we talked about off mic, which is how environment is important. And environment has a lot to do with how you think uh, of other people and their opinions of you. The, the question that a lot of this relies on is, why should you care about what other people think? An element of that is who gets to pick the person or persons whose values set the bar for how you should act? Why them, not me? Why them, not them? That's one of the questions I have is, you know, who died and made you boss? Why, why do you get to say whether I'm a cool kid or not kid? Because to me, you're not a cool kid. So what do I care? And now that we're older and outside sitting, uh, you know, looking in, that makes a lot of sense. But whenever you're younger, when all you have is your peer interaction, then it's not as clear cut, I don't think. But, you know, we talk about, you know, some of the downsides of worrying about what other people think. But then there are some positive things that could come out of just paying attention to uh, yourself. So I, I'll use my mom, super duper, one of my favorite people in the whole entire world. I would say my favorite person in the whole entire world, but then my dad might get a little bit jealous. So one of my two favorite people in the whole entire world. And so, but she always taught us that, you know, we never leave the house without ironing our clothes. So we ironed everything. And it was very much about our presentation on what it is that people think. Now, on the flip side of that, I love her and love that whole aspect because it helped me to be able to present myself and always worry about my dad always taught me the firm handshake and how it is that you actually talk to people and looking people in the eye. These are skills that have served me very, very well throughout my young and adult life and kind of set me apart in some aspects from other people who it is. I mean, we're always, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We always open up the door. There was a certain things that we did because it is that we wanted to create the right impression. 
But I think there's a difference between creating an impression and then also worrying about what other people think. We also had a saying that says, whatever goes on in our house stays in our house. So we didn't talk about what happened outside of the doors of our house of what's going on. So it kept us very private, which which made me have a big challenge when I initially got on social media, because, you know, in order to be a public figure in social media, to be successful in social media, a lot of that is putting sharing your life with other people, allowing them to be able to follow your journey. And so I've always been taught to keep things, you know, <laughs> private. So it was very hard for me to be able to break that barrier or at least, you know, know where the gray area is in that. But it also made me very conscious of what other people thought about me. And that's something that I had to moderate as is I was growing older. Now, like you said, as you get older, you just, you just get to the point where you're like, I don't really care what other people think. I'm going to do what it is I'm going to do because I'm going to live my life. And if you do well, they're going to hate on you. If you don't do well, they're going to hate on you. So if they're going to hate on you one way or the other, those type of people you don't want in your life anyways. You only want the people who it is that are going to uplift to support you anyways. So if you're at the point where it is that you're judging me for something, I don't need you in my space and affecting my space, inspecting the atmosphere and the mood inside of my space. So I'd rather eliminate you from my life in the first place. One of the things that makes it interesting, given my background, is because I spent so much time in military and quasi-military type organizations. It's very easy there. The pecking order is pretty well set up. The organization chart's easy to read. You look at what's on their shoulder and you look at their name tag, you got it made. Because you can say, oh, he has more stars than I do. Therefore, I have to pay attention to what he says. Oh, he doesn't? He has to pay attention to me. That made it very easy. I remember about midlife working for this one particular company. I did a good job of respecting all the people that were there. I thought some of the people who had upper echelon jobs were dumber than a box of rocks. And I thought we were really carrying them. And why were we paying this much money when they weren't actually contributing? But I treated them with, with respect. But apparently one of the things I did was I believed in people as individuals. And I gave them merit by how good they were in terms of how they treated others, how much they contributed, how hard they worked, and the fact that they were a team player. And so I would treat them the way I'd want to be treated by them. I didn't realize that one of the things I was doing was that I was treating them, but not being deferential to them just because they had a, they were you know one step up in the organization chart. I treated them with respect, but I wasn't going to fall down and go, ooh, it's the president, you know, to, to the point that one day I was working on some project and had to go to the president's office. We were discussing it, and he said to me, do you know that one, what one of your problems is? I thought, oh, here it comes. And I said, no. He said, you don't show any deference to anybody in this organization. And I said, but uh, do I treat them with respect? And he says, begrudgingly, I would say, but you certainly are not wowed by them. And I said to the man, it just came out, but this has become a motto of mine from hmm, age whatever it was, 35, 40. I said, as long as my wife loves me and I'm righteous with God, the rest of the world really doesn't matter that much. I'll be good, but it doesn't drive what I do. It's amazing because you have, you hit on one of the things, I have a lot of friends that are military, a lot of team members that are, are military as well. Uh, and some of them have a, a real big issue being veterans coming back and integrating into the society because they've been trained like that, right? They're, there's always a ranking system. And some of them are really high ranked 
military, whenever they retired, they were really high ranked in the military. So now you come out and there's no respect. And there's, we talked about the younger generation, you know, there's certain things that they were, they grew up in the military. So they always have done and will do. And there's certain level of respect and pride that comes along with being, uh, doing the right thing that people don't have. So it finds they find it hard to be able to integrate into society that doesn't have the same morals, values, and belief system that they have grown up in and doesn't respect the ranking system and the respect system and all of that kind of things in the regular world. And that becomes a, a big challenge for them because they don't understand how it is that you can not have respect for somebody who it is that's a higher position. We, we deal with this a lot, a lot within our team. You know, our team, we have different levels that you are. Uh, and there is always this whole, you, all, you never break rank, right? So whenever it is that you're actually dealing with people, they would get uh, offended and they would get upset if it is that somebody talked to somebody outside of their ranking system or their linear system, right? But they just, had, they just gave them a, a, they had a real hard time until they finally adjusted to it outside of the military to be able to adjust to that fact that it's not the same way in the regular world. Sure. Well, look at IBM. IBM came into its prominence after World War II. It was populated by so many veterans who had fought the war. So it was very easy for that organization to be quasi-military. But that's changed over a period of time. Actually, I was in the last like a cadre of American males that was under the draft. I had a draft number. I doubt that you had it. You're supposed to sign up for the draft, but you were not subject to being drafted, you know, for uh, inclusion into the military. And so it, it, it's, it's very clear, as I said, with the rank and the uniform, that kind of thing. But as an example, I worked for a very large public accounting firm, one of the big eight, and you had to serve two years after you passed the CPA exam to get your certificate. And so for two years, they would beat on you like a rented mule. I mean, they would have you traveling 95% of the time. You would just get this workload. You couldn't do it, but you would stay there because you wanted to become a CPA with that firm's name behind you. And so the people up in the organization would know they could do this. And if you couldn't cut it, well, there were 900 other people that wanted that job because this was a premier firm. It was referred to, I heard later, as the Chinese army syndrome. <laughs> Boom, that soldier's gone. Hey, we got a bunch more. We'll just plug right in there. You know, we, it, to the point that I remember people saying, calling up and saying, oh, we don't have enough manpower here. Send me a couple more drones. And so it was kind of like, I don't care who they are. Just send me two warm bodies here to do this stuff. So those people who, if you got to a certain level and you found out you weren't going to become a partner, then you generally got a job with one of the clients or something like that. And when they went from that level being up there to working in another company that didn't have the same organizational thing, they discovered or the organization more likely discovered, they had no people skills because they didn't have to. They could just turn over and get somebody else to, to do that stuff. So the peer pressure for you as a junior person was just to take it, just suck it up and take it. I came home from an audit one time. It was a terrible audit. We were out of town. It was just, 
And so I got home and it was late at night. As I walked into the bedroom, it was, you know, lights were off. Light flips on. My wife is sitting in bed. She's holding a, a, a framed picture of me that usually sat somewhere on her side of the, of the bedroom. And I said, hello. And she said, hmm. She looks at the picture and she says, you bear a striking resemblance to my husband. <laughs> I said, this audience is almost over. And besides, you were in public counting. You know how this goes. I got six more months. So let's just suck it up and we'll do. And, and that was the peer pressure. The peer pressure was because we had to turn in billable hours, this kind of stuff, that you would only, you would ghost at work. You could work 20 hours on a job. You'd put that you worked eight because you didn't want to blow the budget. That was the peer pressure. Mm. So shifting gears, how does all this affect your, your faith, right? Uh, so for me, it was a, a lot about the goals that I had set for myself that were really aggressive based on what it is that I thought I should be able to accomplish. This was self-inflicted pressure as well. So starting my first business at 13, always being an entrepreneur, doing something on the side, landing my first salary job as a junior in college, and then moving right into corporate and then going to have my own business. I set really aggressive goals for myself based on what I thought was success and what I thought my purpose was. And it wasn't until it is that I got to an adult that I realized that my purpose is not in my accomplishments and my skills and all the things I was given, that my purpose really is in serving God, number one. And number two, how it is that I can be that light for others and to be able to make my impact on this world. But it took me a lot of my life, a big majority of my life is still learning this as I go to be able to realize that. That's why it's my passion now in teaching, especially men, how it is to be able to find purpose outside of what it is that they think that purpose is really about. So tell me a little bit about uh, TW, your faith and how it is that, you know, what other people think has affected your faith uh, throughout your whole entire life. I learned at the same time with a story about the picture and, and that kind of stuff and the Chinese army, et cetera. It was interesting because we had three men there that had graduated from Bob Jones university. And that's a, uh, in, I think it's in South Carolina, but it's a very fundamental Baptist, I think, university. When you came out of there, you were, you know, Bible thumping, goody two shoes. You just, you know, you didn't do any sin. You just kept on going and did the everything that the word said you would do. So it was interesting for me to watch them in basically this cauldron of drinking and carrying on and out of town and having affairs and all this stuff and to watch these guys and how they reacted to it. Well, for one thing, everybody knew they were Bob Jones graduates. So therefore they were Christians. So we might be going out and going to get drunk, but let's not invite the Bob Jones guys because they're not going to go anyway. So they were set up and set aside. So Christians were set up to say, okay, they're not partiers. They're different. Oh, by the way, they're never going to get promoted because they can't party with us and that kind of thing. So I got to see men whose careers were affected negatively by their strong belief. And I even had a conversation with one of them who admitted that it was tough sometimes not to go along. And he had to decide whether it was more important for him to stay true to his belief or to go along, get along, and get the promotion. But he stayed with his belief, and he eventually 
left the firm, took a took a position as a controller, and uh, and went on. And so I think about at a younger age, I thought that's interesting that he would be so passionate. But on the flip side of it, when I was in high school, being a strong Christian, we had uh, we had two courses in in Christianity in the curricula, and we had chapel every day. And on Sundays, the Episcopals had communion service earlier than everybody else. The Episcopalians went to the chapel, the Catholics and the Jew and the Jewish boys. I guess the J- Jewish boys went out on, on Saturday night, but the Catholics went out at the same time. We all came back and then we started our day. So there was a vehicle whereby being active as a cr- Christian, publicly demonstrating your Christianity was not held against you and was in fact encouraged because the school saw it as making you a better person, somebody who was more reliable, somebody who could be counted on because you had those good fundamental values. It wasn't until I got into the work world that was outside that environment that I saw the world really chips away at that. And I had to decide which was I going to be one way or the other. Because after all, if you're working this hard, Sunday is one of the only days you have off. Why blow it off by having a half day in church and getting involved with all that? So I would say the toughest time to be a Christian is from the time you graduate from high school until you're about 35 years old, because that's when most of the, the, the pressure is on you to do that. Of course, that was then. Now, it, there are so many influences that uh, it, it's not as held in esteem at all. As a matter of fact, it can be counted against you. Yeah, this is interesting because that you say talking about staying true to your belief is standing on your belief system. So as as you know, but maybe the viewers don't know, I've never had any alcohol. Here I am, 40 years old, never tasted alcohol before. Uh, and, you know, it was told to me, it actually started as a very competitive person. And as we started as a challenge, some of my friends told me I would never be able to make it through. First, it was just a belief thing. I just saw how alcohol had negatively impacted a lot of people in my life whenever I was in high school and younger, both friends, parents, and everything else like that. My parents never drank around us. So that had a lot to do with it. So I just never thought there was a need for it. But in high school, my friends challenged me that I wouldn't be able to make it through high school without drinking. Because they thought peer pressure and everything else like that, it's just not, you know, it's just something that it was the social norm to be able to do as a way to be able to get back or get around um, the relationship with your parents. I guess my parents and I didn't have that strenuous relationship. I found other ways to be able to, you know, rebel if you want to, but it was never through drinking. So, but the challenge was, and the bet was, I wouldn't be able to make it through high school. So it started off as a challenge and just something not that I stood on that I believed in. But after I made it through high school, and went into college, those same friends bet me that I definitely wasn't going to make it through college without drinking. That's part of the social basis of college in their minds. So they they upped the ante and made a huge bet that I wouldn't make it through. And they paid out on the high school bet, by the way. Uh, but they also <laughs> said that they I wouldn't make it. They were willing to tenfold the bet that I wouldn't make it through college without drinking. And it was an honor system thing because back then there wasn't social media for them to check on me to see if it is that I was doing it. But they knew my morals and values and they knew how stubborn I was that I was going to go my best. So, you know, this when people found out about me not drinking, it was really interesting because, you know, I pledged the fraternity without drinking. Several different fraternities I looked at, I told them this up front. I was like, I, I won't violate any of my morals and values in order to be able to get in. One of those is drinking and I won't be able to do that. 
So I was able to pledge a fraternity and still have fun and still go to the parties and still, you know, be at the center of the dance floor and everything else and never violate my morals and values when it came to drinking. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't challenged a lot on that aspect, both by people in my organization and by the social norm. We would go to parties and I would take a, a IBC root beer in my hand because it looked like a beer bottle just so I wouldn't have to constantly answer the question about, do you want to drink? Why aren't you drinking? And have to go into a story with everybody is that I met. And more than one occasion, I had people tell me, you got to have a beer. We're going to get you to drink. We're going to get you. We're going to be the first one to get you to drink because uh, you're making us feel bad. You're making us feel guilty because you're not drinking and we're getting sloshed. Right. Nothing to do with me. 100% to do with what it is that they had and they believe it. Almost that bully thing we talked about earlier. My decisions, my choices that had nothing to do with them was making them feel bad because they needed that liquid courage in order to be able to to be the social glue that held them together. They couldn't understand how I was having as much fun as they were, how I was socializing as much as they were without that extra boost of having alcohol, right? And so the pressure was always there, sometimes even more so on me to be able to conform and break in. But to me, that just made me stand my ground even more to be able to make it. So making it through high school, making it through college, making it through corporate where it is again the culture is after it is let's go out and have a beer whatever else and go into those social environments and not be able to drink and then starting a business in east texas where the culture very much was the more you drink the more of a man that you were so i overcompensated on eating side because you either had to out eat them or out drink them right so i chose to out eat them that's how i got fluffy part of how i got fluffy right uh, is you know being able to tackle that 22 ounce porterhouse steak or whatever it was right um but it was just it was just interesting how it is that, you know, what you talked about, having other people be able to put pressures on you, either gets you to conform or even makes you stand even firmer in your belief system because now you're grounded in that. Well, I think that you can you can speak to this quite well because of the, all the health club stuff that uh, that you do. You go through an example, like you said, uh, they wanted to be the first one to have you have a drink. They wanted to get you drunk. All right. So what happens when you go out? and you get drunk. The next day, you feel terrible. So it's the same thing when uh, somebody goes out and binges on chocolate ice cream. What happens? You know, the body reacts and it, you, you feel worse having done it than if you hadn't done it. So at some point, a smart thinking analytical person would say, hmm, I did this. I thought it was going to be great. For a tiny second, it was okay. But for a long time after that, it was terrible. You know, I got the, you know, the after sugar lows, I put on weight, and, uh, I got constipated, whatever. You can look at any of the behaviors that are bad for you, and you'd have to say, a rational thinking person would say, no, I'm not going to do this, or if I do it, it's going to be in much greater moderation than my peers are advocating. Why should I collectively do something stupid and join the other lemmings jumping off that cliff? At some point, you have to say, I'm an individual lemming. I choose not to jump. And you know, you're a linear thinker. So for you, it's all about logic or whatever else <laughs> for that. And we can almost do a whole podcast just on that point alone, but I'll touch on it with this. In that moment, they're trying to get away from logical thinking. In that moment, they just want to escape, whether it's food, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, it's just chasing that momentary way of getting away from all of your problems, your issues, and everything else like that, and being able to turn it off for a second. So it's just putting a Band-Aid on a much bigger problem 
And what happens is those moments in between where it is that you're dealing with your problems become smaller and smaller as that habit and that addiction becomes worse and worse. So as it is that you drink more to get away from your problems, your problems multiply. So you have to drink more to get away from your problems. As it is that you eat more in order to be able to get over all that stuff, you're eating more to be able to get out of the depression that comes from eating more and you create a pattern. As it is that you do drugs to get away from the world, you do more drugs to get more away from the world. And this is with anything. People go to the gym too much. People who it is that, you know, they do anything in excess to be able to get away from all the issues that they need to be able to address in the first place. So, of course, logical, we say, yeah, just don't do it anymore. Just stop eating. Stop drinking. Stop doing drugs. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. Drugs are bad. You're ruining your life. So just stop. But is it that easy? No, because you got to deal with those addiction centers. And like I said, we could do a whole podcast on on that because that's just something that that uh, is so tough and, and so many people have to, to deal with. And that's what we deal with in helping people with health and nutrition, right? But, you know, getting back to we can go we could go on a, on a bunny trail down that route of a getting back to, you know, your faith and how it is that your faith and dealing with. I know that is that you had looked up some some scriptures that you had ran across some scriptures when it came to what other people think in your faith and kind of giving you a foundation on that. So, yeah, the first verse, it comes from the Psalms 118. This is verse eight. It says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's one of those things that when you sit back, contemplate, meditate, pray on, however it is that you do it. And you say, getting drunk is not satisfying. But when I think about all the good things that the Lord has given me, the path that he's leading on, I can sit back and say, you know what? I get satisfaction from that. (laughs) And when you think about it, I didn't have to come out of pocket to do it for the most part. It's because it was a gift from God. And he was the one that said, "Uh, I want you to do this. And you do it and you feel that buzz that you were looking for that lasts for a long time because it's in your soul, not in your mouth and on your stomach. The other one was from Proverbs. This is 29, chapter 29, verse 25. It says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So fear is one of the reasons why peer pressure works. I'm afraid of not wearing that Izod thing because people will think bad of me. And so that, you know, the verse gets there. But if you have the confidence that you are a child of God, known by God, trusted by God to do the best because you will be fallible that you can, you can get that satisfaction and comfort that you can't get with material things. If a person says, I don't like it because you don't wear an eyes on and said, well, good, because I don't want friends that have that as a criteria. So I'll find other people that will. It gets to that part of the scripture where it says, you don't sleep with dogs and you wake up with fleas. You, you, you find good people to deal with. So the peer pressure of doing that, of doing a certain way that you say makes no sense, and you find that people that will agree with you, you will tend to find they will have a strong Christian ethic as well. And what I love is is the fact that, and this is where it is that I think why it is that faith is the base of a lot of the recovery programs, is that having somebody who it is that loves you unconditionally, no matter what it is that you do, which is God. God is love. 
He, he doesn't even have to love you. He is love. So therefore he loves you no matter what it is that you do. There's nothing that you can do that is too bad for God not to be able to love you. Cause that's not even possible. But the idea of that, when you really wrap your arms around that, when you really wrap your arms around unconditional love as somebody who it is that will forgive you and love you no matter what, doesn't mean that there's going to be repercussions for the sins of the things that you do, but he'll love you no matter what. I think there's some comfort in finding that because a lot of our relationships that we have in life are based on what it is that we can do for that person or what that person could do for us. So to be able to have a relationship that's not there, I think there's a lot of power in that. And that's why I think like Alcoholics Anonymous and some of these other programs, a big part of that is your faith base and some of the things that you do when it comes to your belief. And also why it is that whenever you have these uh, prison ministries or people who it is that are looking to be able to repent inside of you know jail or in prison, they also go to faith as well as a basis for trying to go the other direction. Right now, I'm reading a book along with some other people called Knowing God. It's written by a fellow who writes under the name Initial J, Initial I, last name Packer. So it's J.I. Packer. It goes through, I'm only about halfway through, it goes through the process of what it takes to pursue a relationship with God so that that relationship gives you the ethereal, the spiritual, and the human satisfaction of having a good relationship with something that is ultimately good. Izod's not necessarily God is. And so I find that to be an interesting exercise. If you're going to go out and pursue things, material things is, is one thing, but the better reward is to go for something that is, as they say, everlasting. Yeah, because there's always going to be a bigger car, a faster car, a better car. There's always going to be a bigger house. There's always going to be somebody who it is that's a little bit better at the skill set than you. But if it is that you're you're not chasing your purpose in stuff and in people, and instead you realize that your purpose is to be able to love, trust, and believe in God, and that your other purpose is to be able to leave your impact on this earth by being that light for others. It takes a lot of pressure off of your shoulder, first of all. But second of all, it allows you to be able to really, truly find uh, and tune the gifts that God has given to you to be able to fulfill your purpose on this earth. And I think that's a really good place to be able to stop. So we always like to, to give you a call to action. Look, if it is that you have comments, feedback, or whatever else, we'd love to hear your feedback on each of our podcasts. We love our community. We love the people who it is that listen to us. We thank you for subscribing. If you have not subscribed yet, definitely click on the subscribe button. We're on a million different platforms. So if you go to techingthecowboy.com, you can find us on whatever platforms it is. But more importantly, share this for somebody who it is that may need to be able to hear it. You know, share this with a friend or with a family member who it is that you think can really get something out of this message. That's really our purpose in doing these podcasts is that hopefully that we'll be able to reach somebody who really needs to be able to hear it. Any closing thoughts, TW? I think that we need to decide in, in dealing with what other people think. The most important thing is determining who we are. So that's it. So my name is Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And this is T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. And we thank you for joining us. So we're going to go ahead and kick that country outro music. That's it for this episode. Join us again next time for The Techie and the Cowboy. Hit us up on our website, thetechieandthecowboy.com. Let us know what y'all think.